You're listening to The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor, trader, short seller, and deep dive researcher for the last two decades plus, and me, Daniel Schwartzman, who's worked in investing media the last decade while managing my own stocks. We break down investing themes or ideas and speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. Reach us on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. You can subscribe to Akram's The Razor's Edge newsletter at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. The link is in Akram's Twitter profile. Here's our disclosure. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We'll disclose any positions and any stocks discussed in the introduction to a given episode. This week's episode wraps up, at least for now, our Future of Compute series. We talked to Naveen Rao, one of the leaders in artificial intelligence. He founded Nirvana Systems as the first next-gen AI chip company, sold it to Intel, and then worked on Intel's AI roadmap for several years before leaving the company, and just announced a new company he co-founded and is CEO of, Mosaic ML. Naveen explains his journey and how the problem in AI has changed in the last seven years or so. We also get into the state of play now versus 2016, the challenges facing legacy chip makers, why IPOs haven't happened yet in the sector, and Tesla's AI ambitions. It's a good wrap-up of the series given Rao's perspective, which differs a little from our previous guests, and gets us good angles on the NVIDIA arm deal, the supply chain, and a lot more. I hope you enjoy. For disclosures, I'm Wong Apple, TSM, and Dell. Also, if you have any suggested guests on this topic, reach out. We're happy to keep this book open if the opportunity pops up. Let's roll. Naveen, welcome to the Razor's Edge. Good to have you on the podcast. Great, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I think a lot of our listeners are going to be aware, especially once they've heard the names that are that you've been working with. But could you just give us sort of a quick background on your experience in AI? What's brought you up to the present point? What you've you know what you've seen and done in the field? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, this has actually been a very long term. Um, interest uh, of mine, even in undergrad in the, in the '90s, I, I was enthralled with uh, you know how the brain could could be uh, either mimicked or at least taken inspiration from to make computers better. Um, and I was you know as a computer engineer, uh, finished up undergrad, came out to the, to the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, and started working in the field. Uh, you know during the dot com uh, boom and bust and all of that. Uh, so got to see a lot of things then. And you know after ten years in the industry, I said you know. It, it's kind of time to go back and and try to try to go back after this interest. And so I actually quit my job uh, and went back to get a PhD in computational neuroscience. So I, I, I sort of approached the AI field from from the two angles of computer architecture, software, and you know neuroscience. And uh, you know after a little while, that turned out to be maybe an interesting combination. And uh, I was I was a researcher at Qualcomm, where they were looking at neuromorphic architectures and and other interesting ways to kind of make um, devices more intelligent, uh, more new experiences uh, at the edge. 
And, you know, this is around the time that deep learning started becoming uh, an important part of the machine learning repertoire. This is uh, ImageNet 2012 was sort of the defining moment. And uh, AlexNet, if you recall, was the was the, the the thing that mattered then. And you know, I sort of saw this as like, you know, what this is a this is a time where we actually don't have computers that are architecturally optimized for this sort of computation. And if we believe that all computation will start looking like this, it's time to get on top of it and build computers that are architected correctly for this. So uh, that's actually when we went out and um, started Nirvana. We we actually, you know thought about doing it while we we're at Qualcomm, then went out and talked to a couple of investors. They actually said, sure, I'll, I'll invest. <laughs> so we were off to the races. Um, we were the first company to really think about it like this. And it was difficult. I mean, at that time, if anyone was remembers that there was a silicon hangover in the VC world and uh, uh, from the networking days of the mid 2000s. And so people weren't doing hardware investments. And so when I pitched it, it was actually quite difficult. People are like, well, why do you want to build hardware? What is, what is this deep learning thing? Like so a lot of my work was educating um, investors. And, and of course, we found the um, the willing bunch who believed in it because, you know, they, they were, I think, some of the smartest investors out there. Um, and, you know, they, they gave us enough money to get going. And, you know, then two and a half years later, um, we actually got acquired by Intel. Um, that was a, you know, a whole journey in and of itself. But, you know, we scaled up to a 1,300-person group, built a large corporate brand. Um, and uh, then, you know, I quit, I quit that uh, last year and uh, just before the pandemic started and uh, started working on this next gig. And i um, happy to tell you a little bit about that today. That's yeah. That's that's a that's a great overview, and and I, I'm sure we'll get to the new gig in a second. I'm curious the your point about educating about the architecture. I guess I'm curious to hear a little bit more if you could explain that a little bit more. But then also like how much has the industry adopted that? Because we've talked to a couple other companies in the field, and we're getting a fuller picture of AI computer. I think a lot of what you've you must have had to preach at the time has become more accepted gospel, but I'm curious to hear a little bit about if you just explain a, a little bit about that architecture and what you had to convey to the market at the time and what's yeah. been taken. Yeah. I mean, basically, uh, I think that the main, the high level part of the argument was that neural networks have a different mix of computing primitives that must be optimized to make these go fast. And they go, making them go fast is important because Data set sizes are growing, neural network model sizes are growing, and we'll need to make this happen within a more tractable time. Um, you know, I think Jeff Dean said something like anything, anything you, uh, a, a single unit that people, that humans can think about is about, is about two weeks. After two weeks, it becomes almost intractable to do something. So you need to make these computations finish in two weeks. And that's kind of the, the mindset we had. And, um, you know, convincing people that neural networks were important was actually a big part of the job. Then saying, well, okay, yes, you agree those are important. Why don't standard computers work? Then we had to go through this whole argument of, you know, they're, they're matrix-based. They, they, they need a lot of bandwidth to inner products. They need a lot of memory bandwidth. They need, a, uh, you know, weight, uh, weights to be close to computing. Like, there's a lot of pieces here that are different than what standard workloads like, you know, a database or a web server need. And so kind of motivating this whole thing is actually where, where I spent most of my time uh, in those early days. And so uh, 
where as you were at Intel and as sort of the intervening years, I, or I guess let's just jump, talk to us a little bit about what you're trying to do with Mosaic and that can kind of help us get a little bit of a then and now, and then we can kind of pull back to see the full picture again. So where, where are you, what problem are you trying to solve now and how are you, like, what does that say about where the market is? Yeah, so now, I mean, we've learned a lot. Uh, we've learned a lot about how these computing architectures should look. I think at Nirvana, we were really kind of pushing it in terms of what should be done. Like, oh, this whole matrix-based architecture was not a foregone conclusion, right? We, we went through a lot of iteration. Myself and a few others sat in a room for a week and, and came up with that, um, uh, just brainstorming through things. And we had a lot of other ideas that we didn't actually pursue. So um, I think that's why people think it's simple now. It's like, oh, of course you just build that. But that wasn't clear at that time. Um, and what also wasn't clear is how we distribute computations across multiple chips. And uh, also wasn't clear was, you know, how much things will cost uh, overall to train large neural networks, how long it will take, how long, how big data sets we get. All of that has been elucidated over the last uh, several years. So what we're doing now at Mosaic is actually an extension of this in some ways is we're trying to make, or we are making machine learning training more efficient from a computational perspective, but doing that from the algorithmic level. We're actually changing the algorithms of how neural networks learn to use each flop, each computing cycle more effectively in terms of deriving insight from data. And, um, this is not a dissimilar goal really from Nirvana or anything else, really. We're just using a different technique. Uh, at Nirvana, we're doing it through hardware architecture and systems architecture. Here, we're doing it through algorithms and systems architecture. Um, so, but it's all about how do we make these, how do we make computers start to become, uh, start to approach the efficiency of biological systems? I mean, just to put it in numbers, uh, if we took the state of the art, distribution algorithms on GPUs today and scaled it to the number of parameters that a human neocortex has, it would take uh, about 100 gigawatts of power to run for a month. Um, that's, that's a lot. And you know, the human brain does it in 20 watts. So we're pretty far away from it right now. And I think there's a lot of work we have to do as a field to start to approach, to approach this. So you're looking at the previous bottleneck or the you know sort of initial bottleneck is the system architecture and trying to get people to understand the the appropriate system architecture to support this sort of compute and now is it fair to say that the by attack tackling the algorithms you're seeing that as the new biggest area to kind of cut that gap to kind of improve the efficiency the the speed whatever dynamic you want to describe it is that sort of the way that you're targeting it yeah i mean if you look at the world you know, say pre 2010, um, you know, we had kind of kind of a reliable Moore's law. Uh, every two years, we got a nice doubling in compute capabilities. Software expected that like clockwork and hardware delivered and was a sort of nice uh, virtuous cycle. And the entire tech industry is built on that because it's an exponential. Um, in 2010, something kind of interesting happened. Uh, I mean, for years prior to that, companies were investing in storage for uh, you know, all kinds of data, like user, user data, user, user experience data, uh, internal tracking, what have you, right? But they didn't really know what to do with it. Then all of a sudden, people started to figure out that they can use you know, statistical techniques. And this whole term data scientist was born, 
where people can look at data and derive something useful from it. Um, this, this was an inflection point because all of a sudden now the demand for compute was no longer just about what software like databases and things uh, expected. It was about, hey, if I get more compute, I can run more data through this and I can derive more insight, thereby making me a more competitive company. And so the, that, that exponent actually changed from 2x every two years to something like 5x or more per year. And you know this kind of happened behind the scenes and everyone was happy to, to, everyone in the Silicon community was actually very happy about this because it basically drove enormous demand for compute. And that's continuing today. But now we've gotten to a point where actually doing that process and, do, and, process and, and doing that at the state of the art uh, is prohibitively expensive. Training GPT-3 in the cloud is north of $5 million. That's just gotten to a point where it's inaccessible. And if we stay on this exponent, we have a problem. So the real way to, to fix this now is saying, well, okay, we, we kind of had a strategy that we could just keep throwing more processors at this for a while. Now we have to go back and rethink, how do we do that more effectively? How do we actually make these algorithms compute efficient as opposed to just scaling more and more and more? Because cost is becoming a big issue. I mean, every, every intelligent being on this planet went through a process similar to this where um, energy and efficiency was actually constrained along with capabilities, right? These two things go hand in hand. So what is the, when you look at the landscape, we've talked so far to a couple companies that one is tackling it through an ARM-based architecture that is meant to be more power efficient on the hardware side. And one is tackling it through, also through a larger chips, essentially, that changes the architecture. So it seems, so there is, some hardware efforts to tackle this, I think, a similar problem, the power efficiency, but from a different angle. Are there, do you feel that, you know, obviously you're going to talk, talk up your company, but do you feel that there's other companies out there that are, is this recognized as a wide problem? The, the idea of we have to change the calculations, we have to change how the AI is programmed in and of itself or is this something that's relatively uh green space blue space in terms of trying to solve this problem it's relatively green at this point from an algorithmics perspective i think some of the companies you described are are chip companies and yes they're driving toward more efficient solutions but you know there are some of it's coming from device level innovations or process nodes we've we all have seen that for 50 years and that's, that is still continuing. It is slowing, but it is continuing. And then some of it's coming from architectural advances where we can use, you know, transistors and new ways uh, of, of organizing uh, the way the computation is done. Some of it's done through packaging, putting more stuff closer together. That has, that has an efficiency gain. If you sum all these things up, we actually don't get anywhere close to 5x. And that's the problem. We have sort of the, the standard knobs we've used in technology for 50 years where it's like, okay, well, I can do more on the silicon side and I get more efficiency. It's not enough. And uh, what's also happened is that we, we actually know how to split computations across things very easily. We, we need to think about this as on a per dollar basis, really. Per dollar, in my mind, is a very good normalization for, for efficiency because per dollar captures operational efficiency, which is power and management overhead. 
it also captures um, complexity of building something. So building something that's um, very simple will actually use less energy and will cost less. And when you amortize that cost over you know some period of time on an hourly basis, it actually becomes quite a bit cheaper. So these are these are all the knobs we actually have. And then we can say, well, I can take my algorithms and I can slice and dice them however I need to to make them work on whatever constraints I need to support to make things efficient per dollar. Um, I know that's a little bit of a complicated argument, but that's the idea here is that um, instead of going and saying, well, I'm going to make something go faster, that's how I can get efficiency. That was true in the old world. Now we have to think about it like it's not just go faster, it's go faster per dollar because we're not seeing the same kind of scaling we used to see from, from the standard knobs that we had in the, in the computing industry. So performance per dollar per watt, essentially, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Or performance per TCO. That's the right okay. way to say it. TCO is total cost of ownership. It incorporates, yeah, watt and, and dollar. Upfront. So when you think about Mosaic ML, from the way I understand it, it seems to be almost, I, I don't know, like I read the blog post, but a commercial open source type model you're going after software is like, is it a COSS? It is. So uh, our first release is open source. Absolutely. And really that's about um, enabling the community to start using these tools. What we're going to start monetizing later are uh, helping them use them effectively. You know, when we have 20 methods out there, the combinatorics are actually quite high. We're going to have another 20 methods come out, you know, in the next several months. So that's a lot. How do we, how do you use those effectively? We need um, tools to actually guide the users. And that's what we start charging for. We help them budget upfront. Hey, if you want to run this neural network, it's going to cost you $80,000. Is that something you really want to do? We can help you reduce that cost by, you can decrease the performance a little bit. This is the impact of, on your cost. We can, in, you can include these algorithmic modules and include, and it reduces the cost by, by another factor. So being able to model these things out is really what we're about. It's uh, uh, allowing users to have tools to give them accountability and feedback. When people have accountability and feedback, they, they'll use things efficiently. You don't use them willy-nilly. You don't use them open loop. And I think that's what we're really trying to drive toward. And I think that's where we can drive toward a more sustainable future as well. It's almost like an analytic solution. Yeah. It's, for training. It's like a, you can think about it, benchmarking as a service is kind of one part of it. And okay. then a recommendation of how you make your networks, uh, neural networks run efficiently and how much they'll cost is another part. Of it. Now, now, when you take the approach of, uh, of starting out as you guys are from an open source and, and trying to essentially get the develop, developer community on board. I'm assuming you're focusing on one hardware stack, which seems to be the GPU. I didn't like, I couldn't tell whether or not you're hardware agnostic. We are hardware agnostic. Absolutely. That being said, we are building on NVIDIA right now. Yeah. But you know, I, I welcome any solution and I, I look at it very, very rationally. I say, on a given workload or family of workloads or neural networks, do I get a better performance per dollar? Full stop. Like I, I, I this is this is where I get a little bit uh, I don't know annoyed with the hype in some of these companies put out there. It's like there is no magic. Transistors are transistors, and multiply is a multiply. Um, you know, you have to prove that on a performance per dollar, performance per TCO basis, you are better. And if that is the case, I will 100% use it in this. And I will basically make, make it easy for our customers 
to access it. Um, and so I'm looking for whatever the cheapest possible solution um, that, that, that meets our customers' goals. And with workloads today, essentially, you know, from a training standpoint, almost exclusively run on NVIDIA GPUs, uh, that does make sense yeah. as, a, as a starting point. NVIDIA GPUs are an AI accelerator at this point. Two thirds of the die is AI acceleration, right? I mean, I think um, the old game was uh, trying to be, you know, an NVIDIA killer was about, and, and Nirvana was about, we were going to build something specific to AI and the GPU is not. And that was true in 2014, 2015, all the way through to 2017. When the V100 came out, it was actually a pretty big moment. NVIDIA ex executed really fast in reaction to our acquisition, I think, uh, of Nirvana at Intel. They executed very fast and they built essentially a hardware accelerator for AI out of on top of their GPU. And so I, I think people who say like, we have something that's bespoke to AI, that story doesn't play anymore. It's just not accurate because a GPU, an A100 GPU is an AI accelerator. Yeah, that leap from the P100. So, I mean, it's, that's a, you know, it's interesting to to rewind there because you're you're building you know a 28 nanometer tensor core essentially powered solution, right? In what is this 2016? 2014. Okay, so yeah, Intel acquires you guys in 16. So right around that time is also Google's doing its TPU. Yeah. In secret. It, it, like, was there any like any overlap when, once you saw the TPU? I think what TPU was what 2000 what was announced late 15 or early 16. Yeah, it was announced in 16. I mean, we we knew about it internally, but we'd already started. Right there was uh, there was overlap from a time perspective. I would say they probably started six months or so before we had. I think they had some early prototypes in FPGAs maybe before that. But uh, yeah, it, it was not a dissimilar timing, but. I don't think either of us knew about each other until uh, probably 2015 timeframe. But the thinking was then going back to that, that comment NVIDIA killer, like, I mean, that's what you were essentially thinking, right? Like we're going to replace the GPU as an accelerator with a solution. Well, sort of. So at this point, right. I mean, you have to consider that AI wasn't like a first class workload. NVIDIA, NVIDIA was a graphics company. I mean, the P100 was a graphics card. It was also trying to go after high-performance computing workloads. Like, that, that was it, right? They didn't actually consider AI something. They, in fact, they didn't even have the expertise inside of uh, NVIDIA. So we were saying, well, look, we're going to build an architecture that is better than a GPU because the GPU is the best we got. It was better than a CPU, but we can do better. And that's what we were doing in Nirvana. So it wasn't, it wasn't explicitly a GPU killer but it was that we were going to build something better than what the GPU can deliver right now. But then NVIDIA basically modified the GPU to be an AI accelerator, in which case then it became you know, much more of a level uh, apples to apples comparison between Nirvana and the ilk, right? All the AI accelerators and a GPU. Gotcha. So I think actually the better way of looking at it is uh, 2018 maybe was the quest for the NVIDIA killer. And I think that like that's when the, you know, the I mean, you know, the hundreds of uh, chip announcements started and everybody in hyperscale was was announcing a project and so on and so forth. And you started hearing a lot more about dedicated uh, 
dedicated startups. But yeah, I mean, like if if you look if you look back at at their business at the data center, I mean, around 2016 is probably one tenth the size of what it is today. And the, I would I'd, I'd argue probably half of that, if not more, was HPC. Yeah. So yeah, you didn't really even have like you didn't have that market yet proved to be thinking about it. So yeah, yeah. Right. Definitely makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the whole HPC market in general is about $500 million. It's not huge. And yeah, NVIDIA was taking a bigger part of that. Uh, if you go back and look at all the supercomputer um, announcements, like NVIDIA was very proud of the fact they were displacing Intel in terms of the share of wallet, like how, much, how many dollars were going towards them versus Intel. And then that was the game they were playing. They were not playing an AI game yet. Yeah, that was definitely the focus, and like you know, this came up around the mobile eye time as well, because not many people were looking at Nvidia from that standpoint. So it's like, I was like, these guys have the algorithms. The algorithms come from the data, the training data, and uh, this is, I mean, I think one person described mobile eye at that time as uh, as Microsoft and Intel combined. I, ironically, before uh, maybe like eight months before Intel ended up acquiring them. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Mo I mean, Mobileye, I, it was never really, I don't, I don't think you can consider it an AI chip company, right? They were building something that was, they built a bespoke accelerator for what they were doing. There is an AI chip component, but that's not what they were delivering. They deliver a, you know, sort of a full package solution for, uh, you know, certain kind of computer vision. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. Uh... A, a baked on a chip ASEC to, to, to run their algorithm. Yeah. And it was very much not general. I mean, they never intended it to be right. It's a, it has all these little, you know, small accelerators for different kinds of computation. And many of it weren't, they're not even deep networks, right? They, they were things that were very optimized for latency and um, you know, for the solution solution that they were building. Uh, I, I wouldn't call that an AI chip because it's not general enough. All right. So fast forward then to from 16 to 18, you're, you're at Intel, you know, every other month there's Alibaba has an announcement. Huawei has an announcement, you know, maybe Facebook's building something. Uh, I think we got the uh, AWS announcement around uh, Inferentia, like maybe a month after the T4 was announced. Uh, that, that environment where you guys are getting ready to, to, to come to market, you know, and well, I'm assuming targeting the cloud, the hyperscalers with, with, with a go-to-market strategy, in which case you're essentially competing head-to-head -head with the V100 or more likely, you know, Amper before it comes out and what's coming next. Uh, and you're looking around at what everybody's doing, like, is there a, th a thought process going on there where it's like maybe our approach isn't the same because you started to see things like, well, you know, we're going to put more SRAM. It's, uh, you can fit a bigger model here. Uh, actually, no, it's about memory bandwidth on the outside. This is the approach you need to take because, you know, you're limited in this or let's take dedicate more of the die to this. And then the CPU guys start doing uh I mean, I think now everybody from a CPU standpoint has added uh, matrix multiply cores, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, is, isn't that what Sapphire Rapids is going to be when it comes out in like in a few months? Yeah. So the AMX instruction set is actually, yeah, it's not specific to, to Sapphire, Sapphire Rapids. I think Sapphire Rapids, you're going to see better uh, memory bandwidth, uh, and then the AMX instruction set starts to do that. So yes, yeah, so basically that that acceleration is 
getting added to everything now, right? Which we anticipated in 2016. Okay. So this was all part of the plan. I never wanted to just build one little discrete accelerator and be done with it, right? It was always about a technology roadmap that was going to proliferate into more, more and more general versions of itself. And um, it really does need to get into the CPU and be accessible through, you know, very simple uh, programming interfaces to make it ubiquitous. Um, this is kind of the, 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 the point of friction that we were trying to attack NVIDIA on a little bit. I mean, we had the same point of friction with Nirvana because, you know, we were an, an AI, uh, sorry, a, a, a PCI card, just like a GPU. But the idea overall was to start incorporating this back into the CPU and making the CPU better. And so, you know, we did a lot of the work. My group did a lot of the work in terms of making the CPU a better for inference, right? 8-bit inference, 8-bit um, instructions were added as part of this uh, DL boost set of instructions, right? Uh, there, th that whole thing became a roadmap because we knew it was so important uh, at Intel. And so, yeah, you are going to see the CPU get better and better. And Intel will, will write itself in terms of process node technology and all of that. And you, you will have something that is very strong for AI training and inference from the CPU. However, NVIDIA has a, a, just a huge install base of people building models on it. And they're also trying to incorporate CPU into their GPU architecture. So it's going to be interesting in 10 years, right? I, I think NVIDIA knows that they need to get away from this, you know, this tether back to the CPU and, and sort of own more of the system. And that's how they'll move forward. And Intel knows they need to sort of untether NVIDIA and move some of that stuff into, into the CPU. So you got these two conflicting um, forces. And like so converging, right? I mean, the, the gray CPU are, is essentially a move in that direction to try to marry it together. That's right. Exactly. I mean, like I said, I, NVIDIA has known this. They, they actually kind of did it with the Jetson line uh, several years ago. I think that came out in maybe 2017. It had an ARM core with the, the GPU uh, kind of in a shared memory scenario. Uh, it was bootable, but that was used for like, you know, edge, edge devices. So, so when you think about these markets, I mean, you know, everyone listening today from a public market and investing standpoint in AI really has been investing in, in, in one company, right? As far as the hardware and it's been NVIDIA and the narrative around NVIDIA, which, I mean, listening to your podcast with, with James, when they were, you know, like NVIDIA had just passed uh, Intel and market cap fast forward to today. I mean, it's two times the size and everyone's really underwriting this data center business, essentially replicating replacing the Intel data center business, right? The profit center, so to speak, from, right. from an investor standpoint. And when you get into this, which I think this is the challenge for like a public market investor on the outside looking in. And I mean, I've been through this a few times, but like we get told these, you know, breakdowns on these markets. Like if I watch an, an Intel analyst day, and I think it may have been you, but like you, the numbers go up on the board and it's like, you know, this is what's inference. There's $10 of inference for, you know, every $1 of training and our share of the inference market by virtue of the fact that of the CPU is X, Y, and Z. And 
when when you look at that going forward, like you start sitting here and looking, all right, I mean, if the CPU does evolve and uh, let, let's assume Google isn't running, you know, search and whatever, rank brain and and boys and accelerating these things on on, on TPUs or AWS wasn't in Ferentia. Uh, I mean, like I think they just announced recently that they moved Alexa off the uh, GPU clusters onto Inferentia. So if you if you if you looked at those markets and you're and you're thinking from scale and a, I mean, the hyperscale giants are you know probably half the business, right? When you when you look at Intel, no, not quite. no, not not quite. <laughs> like forty percent, like or so by volume on the server side. Oh, and server side, everything is about thirty percent, twenty percent, something like that. They they report those numbers actually. Okay. On the server side, but not so, the revenues, the PC market. So if you, if you, if you, so if you took hyperscale, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying in, in terms of the data center group. Yeah. Would you say it's like roughly half? Uh, no, it's much less than half. It's probably 30%. Yeah. Between, between them and CSP. Yeah. So if you consider all the large players of Facebook, that's not a, it's not a cloud provider, but they're, they're a large yeah. scaler. Uh, and then you consider, enterprise data center through HP, Lenovo, all the OEMs, that's, that's, that's actually much bigger still. Not to say that it's, it's growing, it's, it's probably shrinking, but it's still, that is a bigger part of the market for Intel than the CSPs are. But anyway, I, I, I don't think that's your point. So please continue. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, so the, getting, getting to the point with respect to inference versus training, you look at these huge workloads, right? Where the volumes are going to be or, or, or currently exist today. And you say, all right, I mean, what's the solution that is going to be the high volume solution for, I mean, like, are you targeting an environment where you're replacing, you know, what Google is using? or what Amazon is using since they built custom silicon for these mass workloads that they have because it makes sense for them. So are you so you're asking, is Intel trying to go after, or is Intel, does Intel have a shot because of that scale? I'm... No, I, I guess the question, I, I guess I wasn't clear, is that when you look at these markets and they break them down, but, and, and we think about what is the AI market going forward, is, it, is the AI market going forward from an inference standpoint Right uh, at the silicon level, an evolution of the CPU or an evolution of some sort of hybrid of you know system type solution between a CPU and some sort of uh, accelerator mixed in, or, or or should people be looking at these markets from the standpoint of this is training, this is inference, there's going to be dedicated solutions for each type of thing. Well. I think for the near term, let's say the next five years, yes, there will be uh, there will be a bifurcation between inference and training, at least for the next five years. And people are already building, you know, highly optimized solutions for that. I mean, I'm on the board of a company in Israel called New Reality, which is doing exactly that. They're building a, a kind of an optimized system architecture for inference. It's uh, you can almost think of it like a network attached inference. And the idea being that CPU and all the, all the general purpose stuff in a box doesn't really help you in inference, right? I mean, because you're not doing the inference on the CPU in, in those scenarios, right? If you have a T4 or something like that uh, attached to it. Now, if the CPU gets vastly more efficient, then you can start to build system architecture uh, around that and make it work um, 
for, for at, at scale, right? Because again, it comes down to inferences per second per dollar or something like that, right? You care about the cost, you care about the latency. These are the two biggest KPIs when it comes to, to inference. And so however we can get there, I think it's uh, up for debate right now. I mean, Intel is clearly trying to defend that uh, on the CPU and it was always in the CPU because inference tends to be mixed in with other workloads. Uh, but now people are saying, well, there was a huge performance and, and efficiency gain to be had by, by moving things to an accelerator like T4. So in, NVIDIA has pounced on that and sort of started building things around it. Intel is reacting now. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what that world looks like. I do think training is going to be different from the perspective of infrastructure. We don't typically have training infrastructure in the production workflow. So when you're serving something to your customers, like your Facebook or something like that, you have a production workflow that includes inference, but typically doesn't include training in that. And training will be its own bespoke infrastructure on your internal data sets. So that's going to continue for some time. I do think the world is going to start converging a little bit where those inference accelerators essentially start to adapt over time and, uh, and, and start training. So in 20 years or 25 years, I think we will have sort of brought those two pieces together. Uh, but I, 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 I just see that um, the two markets right now are, are different enough that people are going to build solutions that are, that are bespoke for each. Okay. So like when you see it from a merchant silicon standpoint, I mean, I saw Qualcomm and uh, is, is, is the AI 100, you know, I think it's a targeted inference solution. Yep. That's right. Intel has it. I mean, and they've announced supposedly uh, a large customer. We don't know yet who uh, AWS is using Havana. Well, I think they announced that. Yeah. They're offering it, correct? <laughs> and then you like kind of you rewind from there and you see like these strategies. And I think where it gets really confusing, and I think on the podcast with James, he said when we're discussing like what, like how long will the uh, the hyperscale giants stick to their own projects and internal roadmaps with their own silicon teams? Uh, Google, obviously, you know, with TPU, Amazon has followed with Inferentia. They now have you know, Tranium coming out. Do you look at these and say that they're like, I think you, you predicted five years. Do you think that their, their commitment uh, is going to last longer than that? And like, does this kind of change the dynamics in the market? If you have, you know, different roadmaps inside, you know, different giant, you know, leaders in the space, and then you have merchant silicon kind of competing. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting when you look at the when you look at that dynamic. I think what's happened is making a chip has gotten vastly easier. You know, if you look at 30 years ago, you had to have companies that specialized in it and built up their engineering pipelines to build to build chips. And those who didn't invest in that and have the infrastructure simply couldn't build a chip that was as performant, right? That's what it came down to, right? If you were a systems company or something like that, to go and invest in building a chip and doing it better than Intel or Sun or whomever was very, very hard. Uh, but you know, with the standardization of silicon fabrication and the tool chains and all of that, you can, you know, anyone can go spin up a team of a few hundred people and and build a chip that works at the state of the art. 
Um, I mean, you can see that with, you know, Infrentia is very good performance for Watt. TPU is really good performance for Watt. Uh, you know, you can look Baidu or Alibaba. All of them are, are building these things now. So I think um, that's that's one dynamic that's changed. And so I, I think the what could shift it back to merchant silicon would be, well, if there's some kind of technique that's that's hard to do that these guys can't access and they can only get performance by buying merchant silicon, then it'll switch back. But let's say that doesn't happen. I actually think merchant silicon's a little bit in trouble because you owning the the customer relationship on the software side is actually more important. And customers care less and less and less about the silicon and they care more about you know the APIs and the stability of those APIs. And so you can basically build anything in the back end. And so I had a Twitter thread about some of this in a sense where I want someone to build the best performance for what, and I don't care about your architecture. Like that's not interesting anymore because all it really comes down to is, does it give me a more efficient solution that's cheaper? That's all I care about. And that's all customers are, are going to care about going forward. So the only way Merchant Silicon in 25 years, it, it has a defensible business. If they, if they can do that better, by their own engineering prowess and everybody else, they will have a defensible business. But if that, if the continue, if the current trends continue, where making state-of-the-art silicon is easier and easier, then it, it becomes very hard to be a merchant silicon company. Yeah, I think that's definitely the struggle that like the, the people are dealing with today. I I, I think I I read that thread where you were talking about. Uh, not doing bigger chips because of the defects and density and that someone should just build kind of like, you don't care about the architecture, uh, low cost memory and yeah, as cheap as possible. Right. Cause what, what's happened now is it's kind of interesting. I mean, AI has kind of made it so that I can, I can rebalance and, and slice up my algorithm in new ways that I can use whatever, whatever you give me. If you give me, a certain amount of memory bandwidth and a certain amount of compute, I can actually rebalance the algorithm to, to maximize learning within that scenario. So, you know, I, it doesn't need to be that I build a piece of silicon for that workload. I can actually change the workload and still accomplish my goal on whatever piece of silicon. So it's actually driven more by the economics and it's driven by the workload in a sense. And I think that's what people haven't recognized right now. Like in the silicon world, there's like a, a very strong, in the merchant and silicon world, very strong pull to say, well, the workload is somewhat static. And so I'm going to build some hardware for it, right? That's, that's how it works. Like Microsoft would say, hey, hey, Intel, this is what we need. And Intel will go and, and build that or, or ARM or whomever, right? They're, they're building toward a static kind of workload. But when the workload can rebalance and, and use whatever, then you should make something that's most cost-effective, right? And I think that's what's shifted. And that's essentially what they're doing in-house. So, I mean, yeah, when exactly. you put together Nirvana, I, I don't think that the competition for chip teams, I mean, like we've had so much recently from like from Apple to Tesla, you, you, you always hear like Google just announced, I think it was, what, what's his name? Frank Wu, or is, is that the guy's name? That they hired to design a system on a chip total solution. I, I'm not, I don't know. I wasn't aware of the news, but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, there's lots of... Brain drain yeah. uh, to... Uh, the fang, whatever you want to call it, so the hyperscale giants yeah. from uh, the traditional merchant silicon. And if you're putting these teams, like you said, you know, you've got Taiwan Semiconductor, you've got the EDA tools, everyone kind of has the, the chain, like the advantage of the IDM uh, that, that 
essentially has been the story of Intel for the last 20 years. Once you, once you hit the, the transistor Moore's law issue, right? There's no magic bullet. You're, you're all constrained by physics, right? Exactly. Transistors to transistor. Um, Intel had better transistors a year and a half before everybody else. That was a traditional model, and that's why they could build a defensible high-margin business, right? That, that goes back to no one, no one in the you know non-merchant silicon space could do that because it was hard. It was hard, but now it's gotten easy because I can access TSMC, which gives me the state of the art, right? <laughs> so that's what I mean. It's become very hard to be a merchant silicon company. So, do you think that this could end up? So, one of the guests we had on was uh, the CPO of Amper Computing. Yeah. And you know, we also kind of got into since we're talking about Amazon here anyway, with with what they're doing on on AI chips, because Amper is essentially focused on you know market share from uh, from x86. Right. And you, you've seen that just recently. I mean, like there was some data released that that in the last like 15 months. You know, fifty percent of the new EC2 instances are Graviton, right? And then if you look at the other fifty percent, you know, it's split like thirty-six percent Intel, fourteen percent, you know, AMD. So Intel both has this, you know, losing market share to AMD problem in x86, and then you look at someone like Amazon. This was like ninety-nine percent, you know, just two years ago, right? right? right. X86. So I mean. When you look at these guys taking these approaches, and if everybody kind of starts to go their own way, because as you pointed out, like the back end is there for them, and we've seen it with Apple. No one has really even gotten into now, you know, what ends up with Microsoft uh, with, with their hardware going forward, and then like we can think about the form factors and, and notebooks going forward, and maybe like, you know, how much goes to, towards ARM in that direction. Is it going to be very hard for some sort of great leap? To come out if everybody's kind of going on their own <laughs> their own direction, or I mean, is there like kind of a core building block behind it that you know still kind of keeps things narrowly focused to a degree where everybody can like that that progress can be made without okay if I'm Amazon I've got my roadmap and I'm kind of optimizing towards these types of workloads they all have the workloads that are coming in they have that visibility on that right and are they going to just kind of build for what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, I think what you're seeing with, with the shift to arm and the data center, I mean, you know, I, 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 this, this whole argument that arm is just intrinsically more efficient is kind of silly to be honest with you. Like there's very little about arm as an architecture that makes it intrinsically better. What you're really seeing is the shifting of the margin stack x86 has a bit of a lock-in from you know just a licensing standpoint right really it's only intel and amd that can build it and uh you know now these other companies are saying well i can build state-of-the-art silicon because tsmc gives me access to it plus cadence and synopsis and all the ecosystem players i can go and build a state-of-the-art chip i don't need x86 i can make my workloads work and then i can cut out this you know 60 percent part of the margin stack that that intel takes right uh, that's really what we're seeing here um, is the, sort of that reshuffling. And Amazon's like, well, screw you. And so that's the vertical integration story. Yeah. Right. And that's what cutting happened. out, cutting out the middleman. Exactly. Yeah. They, first they cut out, you know, Dell, HP, EMC, and, and now they're cutting out, uh, you know, the, the Silicon, uh, branded merchant Silicon. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I mean by, you know, these guys, merchant Silicon has to 
has to have something where they're defensible. They have to be able to do something that Amazon can't, right? If they have vastly better performance from circuit design and Amazon can't do that, then okay, then you know they can defend a margin. But if they can't, if they're actually worse performance than what Amazon can do internally or Apple can do internally, then well, why, why should they exist, right? I think that's the question we have right now. Uh, and you know, to, to the second part of your question, where do you think it'll stall progress? I, I don't think it'll stall progress because what's happening is Amazon or Microsoft or Apple or whomever is building toward their use cases. And those use cases are getting more and more uh, finely tuned to what users drive value from computing. So in essence, they've tightened the loop between uh, what computation should look like to service the needs and, and what, and then what the architectural changes are to do that, right? Uh, before that loop was actually quite long, right? We had, let's say the old days where Wintel was not the dominant player. We had Microsoft releasing an OS, I don't know, every few years. There were, you know, productivity tools like Word and other things that they would build and they'd say, hey, Intel, we need these little features. So you get small tweaks to the architecture over time. And it took a long time for that loop to close, right? Because Microsoft had to communicate that to Intel. Intel had to incorporate the roadmap. Um, that would be planned five years out. And then in five years, you get this new feature. So the latency was very long. Now, people can iterate very fast on, on chips, right? I mean, Google with TPU built it in a year. And that's because it's modular. I can buy IP, I can plug it together, and I can say, you know what? You know what? I thought this was the right thing to do, and I realized it's not. Or the workload shifted, and I want to build something else. And so I can iterate every year. I can come out with something new. And that actually, that cycle, it, it almost starts looking more like software, right? Software iterates on a, on a monthly basis. Uh, so this is, it's basically shortening that iteration cycle. It's a good thing for computing, actually. Uh, but, continuous development. Yeah. Continuous development, continuous tweaking, right? Um, we, so you don't, you, you don't really buy into the, uh, you know, Intel Miss Mobile. Mobile was about low power, low latency. Uh, that got kind of arm going. And then uh, this is all kind of shifted to the data center. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I do buy in. They, what, what do you mean I don't buy in? I, I, I believe they did miss this. Uh, and then the no, 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 I get that. I'm saying that in the, the decisions being made around, you know, uh, the, this kind of cycle of there was these advantages around mobile uh, in terms of ARM that people didn't think about. Right. And now this has given ARM a competitive advantage, you know, coming full circle because the workloads have, have moved in that direction based on what happened in mobile. And then the x86 can't compete. Because, I mean, you'll hear the argument, we could, you know, we're, we're just more power efficient, more cores you know, x86 can't hang with us right now. Yeah, I, I don't buy that. That's just, it's just not. Okay. I mean, you can look at, you know, density of compute and memory and all of that, you know, apples to apples, and you get something that's very similar. I mean, what, where is the inefficiency coming from in x86? So there's a, there's a big decoding tree. Okay, sure. But the amount of silicon that's devoted to that now is, is very tiny, right? There's all these ways of kind of getting around it. Under the hood, after this kind of microcoding layer, like, x86 chips actually look very similar. They're, they're, the architectures of CPUs aren't all that different, right? So this whole idea that ARM is intrinsically more efficient is just not true. Okay, so then if you look at it from that standpoint, going back to the, you know, stealing margin back and vertically integrating, 
uh, I mean, there's no company with with a model that is about selling, you know, essentially the equivalent of a Ferrari of a chip than than Nvidia. Yeah. So, do you think, in ge- generally speaking, that uh, the hyperscale guys are going to do whatever they can not to find themselves locked in? Yeah, absolutely. To uh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's exactly what they're doing now, and it, it's totally rational, right? Once you have the scale to justify it, you do it. I mean, Apple has ebbed and flowed on this many times, right? They they went their own way with PowerPC in the early 90s. Uh, it wasn't, well, I guess first they worked with Motorola for many years, right? I think even in the 80s, they were, they were Motorola. Then they kind of said, well, well, we'll work with you and build, you know, co-build uh, PowerPC uh, with IBM and Motorola and Apple. And then um, they, had, they basically said, well, we don't have the volume to justify anymore, right? When they kind of went through the doldrums in the low, late 90s, they didn't have the scale. And so they had to go back to merchant silicon. Um, unless you believe that Google and Facebook and AWS and Microsoft are going to decrease in scale, I don't see any way they're going to go back. They're going to continue to, to own this, build something that serves their needs and capture the margin, right? Uh, the winner in this will be the one, the, 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 the chip manufacturer, the, the, the fab and TSMC, Samsung are, are actually reaping a lot of benefits, right? I think TSMC. SMC is probably 2x the market cap of Intel now, something like that. Yep. And so I think that's because of this dynamic. And, you know, I think Pat correctly realized this. And it's not the strategy I would have taken, but he's trying to make Intel into a good customer fab, into a great customer fab. Whether they can do it or not, it's a different question. But I think that's what his goal is because he's recognized this fact. And, you know, you can basically say, well, Intel will continue to, to live on the fab and maybe they'll make some products like CPUs, but their main innovation will still come, will come from the fab. Maybe that's the, the right future for the company. All right. So this actually is a nice segue into the topic of uh, why aren't there new, with all, with all that's going on, new standalone uh, public merchant silicon companies. <laughs> I think you yeah. made uh, I mean, when you think about you know, I, I was reading a tweet today about uh, some guy who was, he's got a SaaS company. He has 200K in, in ARR and he had 30 meetings and yeah, didn't get any investment. And then, yeah, and then he, he pulled the, the revenue slide. And I mean, I've, I've chatted with a few, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you followed, but like we, we, I wrote up a bunch of stuff around an NVIDIA short in 2018. Okay. And it was like a two, two prong thesis around, you know, what was going on in crypto and also that, you know, Volta was about like 18 months, CapEx digestion, like that all these things would kind of coincide at the same time. And at that time, I'd been talking to a few startups in, in the AI chip space just regarding like, you know, why wouldn't someone go public here today? Uh, and it's like, you know, we want to get, you know, a couple customers and get to this revenue. I was just like, I can't think of a space where being pre-revenue, like the market wouldn't have an issue at all with you. Like if you just said, hey, we're this next type of chip, like give us the benefit of the doubt, right? Because this is hard. And, you know, here's Intel and here's NVIDIA and here's Qualcomm, right? Like you won't, we haven't had a cycle like this in 20 years, right? Like if you want to go back to ComIC maybe and a lot of the specialty chip companies that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s, you haven't had a wave. Yeah, that's right. Right. And you would have thought that with the excitement around AI, particularly around one company, right, that this would kind of 
allow several companies to go public. Like, I mean, when, like, you know, you, you sold Nirvana to, to Intel in 2016, you guys were pre-revenue business then, right? We were not actually. So, I mean, it, we were, oh, not, you are okay. Yeah, I did not know that. We were, we were actually not a chip company. We were a platform company. We were actually selling, you know, a few million dollars in services that were actually climbing pretty fast as built on top of NVIDIA and even at the time. Uh, so there you go. That would have been even better. Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's 250 times sales. Think about it that way. Yeah, that's great. That would, that, that would be the way of looking at something like that. But like, so there's this narrative that has kind of worked. I mean, not kind of, it's worked very well in terms of definitely in software, definitely in consumer tech. You're, you're listed, you show that, you know, you're chasing the future. The market gives you a premium multiple. That premium multiple kind of sets off this virtuous cycle of attracting talent. Talent comes in, you grow, feedback loop, so on and so forth going forward. And eventually, you know, I mean, like the, and, and Netflix being an example for, you know, over the last decade mm-hmm. where the market essentially funded, like without the market being willing to fund a strategy like this, like you can't build a business like that, right? Right. And when you think about, the chip startups and why we haven't seen any. It's like, I can't think of anything where it's like, you're taking on massive incumbents. And like, we just discussed a lot of these challenges, right? Particularly in it, with, with the hyperscalers and, and what they're capable of doing in-house. Like you would think that there would be more, more IPOs. Yeah. Right. You would think that there'd be like more attempts at, Hey, we're going to pursue this kind of magic bullet strategy, not, you know, a two X performance leave it like a 10, X, a 50 X, a hundred X type thing. And that some of this would get funded and you kind of like potentially get something out of it in the, in, in the chip space where maybe something new emerges. And you pointed out that the VC challenge, because everybody hasn't done hardware in so long around 2016, but like I even fast forward to today. I mean, we went, I mean, I, I can't think of anything that's hard to IPO, right? Like, like <laughs> I mean, every type of business has been able to go public, whether it's a SPAC or whether it's through this traditional process. And yet, like you talk to some people on, on the Silicon side still, and it's like, you know, we're just, we, we want to get to this kind of benchmark before we go public. And I'm like, but why? Like, what's the point? Yeah, I, I, think, I think we sort of, hit around a lot of the issues, you know, the point is that they need to establish that, 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 that demand is real, right. And that, that demand is not decreasing. It, it's hard because I mean, when you see all the, mar- the markets are seeing companies like Intel, not, you know, being very positively uh, regarded. NVIDIA of course is positively regarded because they're fueling this whole AI side of things. But I think if you talk to people inside of NVIDIA or, or elsewhere, they, they're aware, they're aware that this could shift and that they need to look into other ways of, of, of getting to the market. So I think this is why you have seen a little bit of reticence uh, to go after it. Now, I think, you know, it is rational for them to, to sort of look at the, the public markets. And I suspect we will see somebody try it in the next year. I, I, I don't like, know. Do how you look well- at a company like QuantumScape and Battery Tech where, I mean, it's essentially R and D driven right now. Okay. And you're, you're not talking about productizing anything for potentially five years. Right. Why? Like, I just don't get why we haven't seen more of that. The market has an appetite for everything. Like do chip engineers not want to get together and and have a $3 billion market cap without having to prove anything for the next two years? I don't think so. I don't think it's that. I think it's, if you look at battery tech, it's clearly on a rise, right? The, The public perception is that 
there will be a greater and greater demand for this thing, right? That's it. So the overall market demand, no one's going to question it. And what we just talked about, the whole dynamic of merchant silicon, I think it is questioned. It is questioned whether this is going to be the path forward in the future because the CSPs are going and building their own stuff. So if I'm a chip silicon, uh, a silicon vendor right now, I mean, I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, if the perception of the, of the macro market is like this, if I go public, what's that going to look like, right, without revenue? Are they really going to give me credit for going after this big market because of a technological advantage? And I think that's the hard part right now. Um, I do think someone's going to try it, like I said, but I, I actually don't think it's going to go that well. I think battery tech is, is an example of an area that everyone agrees is going to go up and you can go public with that. Um, there's companies in the silicon LiDAR space that have gone SPAC uh, recently, like uh, Luminar and Ava, and they've done okay, not great, but they've done okay uh, because I think everyone does agree that the demand for this technology in the market is 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 undisputed, um, even though they're not really, you know, they're not really revenue companies. So I think you have to establish that macro trend. And I think if you're a silicon vendor in the AI data center space, it's hard. And I, that, that's why we haven't seen it because of this whole, this whole idea that the CSPs are, they might be able to go do it themselves. <laughs> I mean, the CSPs are definitely doing it themselves and they have the resources. But I mean, if you go back to, for example, the NVIDIA advantage when they're selling the GPUs for the targeted market, NVIDIA amortizes that R&D across you know, several end markets that are massive, right? I mean, that kind of does go back to where they, where you can have, I mean, yes, they're definitely marking them up significantly, but that's where you kind of drive the market. And there is still like, to your point earlier, with respect to enterprise government, you know, workstations. And I think, I mean, they've been emphasizing this, actually, it's a good point uh, on the last couple of calls about like how that market has recently been growing, you know, way faster. Like, I think they want to lean into that story more. Don't get too obsessed on the CSPs because of exactly what you're talking about. Yep. But it would seem to be, if that was the case, like, like somebody would look at that and say, you know, if we're going to be funded with significant R and D at this level to pr pursue this almost, uh, unlimitedly for the next, you know, two or three years, why not take a shot? Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, somebody should try it. Uh, I am actually surprised it hasn't happened yet given the valuations of some of these companies, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> because invest, investor enthusiasm, like let's call it the average investor hasn't really drilled down to this, right? Like, if you know, they're willing to own NVIDIA completely without fail looking at TAM numbers on data center. And they're just extrapolating that those numbers are going to be way bigger than, you know, Intel's were, you know, in the last five years. Yeah. Well, I think here's, here's the interesting difference between NVIDIA and like, you know, whatever, any number of these hardware AI companies is that NVIDIA very clearly has established that they, they, they have customers that need them, right? The CSPs need them today. In 10 years, maybe not, but it's not going to go away tomorrow, right? The, 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 it, no CSP, Google, even Google with its TPU can't get away from NVIDIA. Like you look internally, uh, Google can't use TPU for everything. They, they want to, they're trying, but it's hard. Uh, the GPU is actually pretty well engineered and it has a, a relatively mature software stack on it. So that's established. None of these chip companies that have been able to do that even close, right? They haven't been able to get into a point where Hey, we got something that you can't do, CSP, right? 
CSPs are like, well, screw you. I can do what you're doing, right? <laughs> it's not that hard. So I, I think that's the problem is that they have not established that. And that. I think that's the proof point many of them are looking for is like if they can show that they've tapped a large market now it's just about scaling up, then, then the story hang, hangs together for going public. Uh, if they don't have that, I think they're going to have a hard time with that story. That's an excellent point. And so I guess that's a good, good spot to, to move it to, uh, to Tesla and the D1 chip, because while all this is going on, Elon Musk is, is out there. And, uh, I mean, I watched your, uh, hyper growth kind of commentary on this. It, they come out with a presentation that they have kind of this magic bullet. I mean, are, are you buying into that or not? Uh, I, I think that whole AI day was about recruiting. And they even said that, right? Which is fine. I, I get it. You want to attract smart people and you want to show them that you're working on very hard, interesting problems. <laughs> it's not a magic bullet. I, I think people are giving them way too much credit. What, that, that was a demonstration. It's something that's not even really working yet, right? They, just, they literally just got it back from the fab and they're, they're installing it. They've said this. They're not, they're not, they're not being dishonest about it. I think people are just giving them a lot of credit. What it will do for them over time is actually the same thing that it does for any any CSP is that it decreases their cost of extracting value from their data. And that's what they're optimizing around. And basically that's that shifting of the margin stack again, right? You don't want to pay NVIDIA. NVIDIA takes a really nice chunk of change on top of their build costs. I mean, I know pretty intimately well what their build costs are because I did similar kind of chips and, you know, they charge a big premium. And so if I want to look at a TCO kind of back to the earlier part of the conversation, TCO of the solution that NVIDIA provides and look at it in terms of dollars it takes for me to extract certain insights from data, it's quite expensive because of NVIDIA's margins. So if I can go and build something that gives me those capabilities, I can jam more data through per dollar, uh, I have a better uh, solution for less money. And that's, that's what it's about. It's not a silver bullet that gives them some new capability that no one else will have. There's just, it's just not going to happen. But so it's more of the uh, just like Mobileye and then it, 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 Nvidia uh, on the uh, on the hardware side inside the car for the accelerator. Uh, and you basically just view this as yeah, inside the car they have their own chip also. I, yeah, I know that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So like they went from using Mobileye, then yes. then you know Elon Musk has got his like you know email chain with GeoHots and. And he's like, can you build me a mobile eye killer? And then he yep. switches to NVIDIA and then he switches to his own chip with right. the Jim, uh, what was it, Keller who came in? That's right. That's exactly. And I, I think that was the thing, thing to do because all of a sudden they, now they had enough scale. They're shipping enough cars. That was like a three-year progression. Right. I mean, and from an external observer, you're like, how's this happening so fast? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not magic. It's, you know, it's very rational. It's, uh, they're going to probably hit close to a million cars this year. And now it's like, okay, they're shipping a million chips and they're able to provide a better user experience because of latency and whatnot. And so, great, that totally makes sense um, and why they move off of merchant silicon. For the data center, I think the economics are a little bit different. Um, they do have a ton of data and you know, it's not about scale of cars they ship, it's about scale of data they've acquired. And so, given that they now have a, amassed a large data set, um, it starts to become rational to put in 50 or $60 million into developing a chip because they would have spent that money with NVIDIA and, and had no you know, cost advantage on a run rate basis, right? This is a purely rational thing to do uh, at this point. It's cut out, cut out the middleman, cut out the margin stack, bring it internally, reduce cost of, of uh, 
uh, deriving insight from data. Dollars and cents. Yeah, that's right. So when he gets on, I mean, so before AI Day, I don't know, maybe it was like six months earlier when I was talking about Dojo, set aside the fact that, all right, cl clearly, I mean, it's not hard to be skeptical that, you, that the D1 chip is uh, cracked something that nobody else has been able to crack. But he, he also came out with this like comment that like, you know, he, he's going to open up Dojo like a public cloud. And this is where I kind of wonder, is this even like, is this something that could conceivably work? I mean, would you not need an entire stack around that? Or like, can it just do training in the same way a GPU would and he can you know, at least you time? I mean, I, you know, look, I, I think it's, there's a whole DNA and, and, and company that needs to be built around that, uh, which, I mean, that's not what Tesla does. Uh, it's a separate company, really. Like AWS is actually very different from Amazon. Uh, because they have to service customers in a very different way. So I think something similar would have to happen, have to happen here where, um, yeah, you're right. They have to build a whole software stack. It has to be programmable. You have to build a lot of stuff around this to make it usable. And it's not a four-person software team. This is like a few thousand people <laughs> to make that kind of a thing work, right? At scale. Um, could they do it? Sure. Does it make sense for them to do it? That's a, such, a, such a good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it's just hard, right? I think people are understanding are understanding what goes into an AWS, right? It's very hard. There's a reason there's only three major clouds because the map. Well, there's map. a fourth cloud now called Cloudflare. Called what? Sorry, Cloudflare. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you've been following the the oh, fourth yeah. cloud has been a big thing at the edge right now. Oh, sure. No, I, I agreed. But the point is that there's a pretty massive investment required to do this stuff. And you've got to focus on it, right? You've got to service customers in a very different way. It's not the same as delivering cars uh, and, and, and delivering a, a product experience through a car, right? It's a, it's a data center customer that acts very differently. So I think you need a whole different DNA on how you sell, how you service, all of that. And, and that, then on top of the engineering required to get there, which is substantial. Yeah, so I guess not likely as a priority. Like it's something that we could conceivably do uh, based on the development. Do you see actually, by the way, if we think about it from the standpoint of anybody who's developed their own kind of in-house solution, deciding to open it up, is this something, by the way, 10 years from now where like, like IBM or, or, or whatever, where you're spinning out your, your Silicon arm? Yeah. I mean, that's what TPU is, right? Essentially it was used internally first. And uh, uh, a couple of people that I, I know there actually said, well, I think we can start to make this work for external workloads. And, you know, Google is still having a hard time with it. Um, and Google is very good at this kind of stuff. And so, you know, we are seeing, seeing that happen. And it's going to happen with Trainium also inside of AWS. Presumably, Microsoft will have something along those lines in 10 years. So we, we will see this more and more. But we're seeing it from players who already, who already build data centers, who already have scale for customers, enterprise customers, right? Um, I think it's very hard for a company to shift. Now, I, could Elon Musk do that? Absolutely he could, right? If that's what he focused on, what he wanted to do. But in a, in a scenario like Tesla, is it doesn't make sense for them to go after this. I don't know. It feels like a different company. You know, it's like SpaceX and Tesla are two different companies. They're not, you don't put them under the same, same umbrella. They're doing different things. This is just as different, <laughs> frankly. Like the, essentially no synergies, there's, really. There's almost no synergy. I mean, the only synergy would really be that, you know, Tesla has 
data scale that they're going to run through this chip. And, you know, okay, you could say, well, they can now make that available, but I guarantee you their workloads, the way they, uh, um, the way they, you know, sort of their whole data pipeline, everything is very bespoke. And that's probably not going to translate to another enterprise company. You have to build a more flexible pipeline to allow people to import and all this kind of stuff. And you have to do storage in, the, in a way that's secure. I mean, it is a completely different set of requirements. Like if you're building for your own internal stuff, you don't need to care about security. If you're building for, you know, a thousand external customers running on your cloud, security becomes one of your top concerns, right? So this is, this is a, this is a di different kind of DNA. All right. That's good. We, we hit that point. Uh, Daniel, anything else you're on your mind? I think we, we think we've covered a lot. Yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I've just been sitting I guess the only thing unrelated, maybe uh, the NVIDIA ARM acquisition, I mean, we've touched on yeah. several things that are tangential. Do you have a view on whether or not it should be allowed to go through versus, I mean, I, I think we, we've kind of, you've kind of hinted pretty clearly about why they're doing it. Yeah, it's very rational for them to do it. Uh, it was, it was a, a great move for Jensen to go after ARM, I think. Um, whether it should go through or not, I, I think that's an interesting one. I actually think that it will hurt ARM more than NVIDIA if it doesn't go through. Uh, because, I mean, ARM is, yeah, they've done well, of course, but I mean, you know, what, what, is their, what are the revenues? Like a billion per year? Um, it's not huge. And I think having the scale of NVIDIA and combining it with NVIDIA's investment in the software ecosystem will actually be a huge multiplier for them. Um, NVIDIA is going to do this either way. They're going to use, you know, RISC-V or make their own architecture or something. They're, they're going to they're gonna go. They're not slowing. And they have the momentum behind them. Uh, ARM is trying to, you know, they're going, they're trying to transition into data center. They're trying to transition to AI. They haven't done any of that yet, right? I mean, now data center's just starting with, uh, with AWS, I think. So I, I think ARM's, ARM's efforts and ambitions would be greatly accelerated by being part of NVIDIA. So uh, I guess when, when you say, should it happen? Uh, I think it should happen because it'd be good for both companies. Should it happen from the perspective of, is it good for competition? No, it's not good for competition, but it, it's good for Silicon, sorry, merchant Silicon, because now they'll have something that's actually very hard to replicate for, for the rest of the CSP. So, Maybe from that perspective, it actually is good for technology. If you believe that merchant silicon vendors are better for computing technology. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking the other day that it, it, it actually, like Intel AMD would hypothetically want it to go through. Yeah, I, I could see that. <laughs> in, 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 a, in an odd sort of way. Yeah. But, like the, but the question is like, you know, with their plans with, for their own CPU and DPUs, et cetera, like, do they end up driving it in such a way that you're disadvantaged? For example, if you're Amazon and and you're and you're relying on ARM. Yeah, I I think it, they would be disadvantaged. I don't think Amazon would want this to go through, frankly, because Amazon is real. Like, just taking them as an example, and it's, I think this applies broadly. But Amazon wants to take ARM. They don't have to pay a huge part of their margin stack to ARM, right? It's a small royalty fee per core they can build what they need to and scale it up and capture all the margin themselves. As soon as NVIDIA owns it, NVIDIA could probably drive it harder and do more on the technology side, but they're going to want to take a, you know, their pound of flesh for that, right? They're going to want to take more margin. 
And uh, Amazon's not going to want to give that up. So I, I don't think the CSPs want this. I think Merchant Silicon does want it. Great answer. What about supply chains? Has this been something you've been paying attention to? You don't need to worry about that. I don't need to worry about it. I do need to worry about it, actually. Uh, I, I buy hardware and I can't get it. <laughs> Oh, okay. I, I, we actually buy a lot of hard work. A lot, a lot of the research we do is, is very expensive and I want to build it myself in our own data center. And yeah, we have a pretty good cluster going at the moment, but getting parts is hard. I mean, I, I know Jensen, I, can, I, I, I have a, actually asked for help directly <laughs> and it's, uh, it's still not straightforward just because you know, they just can't get the parts. This, this is a, this is going to be a problem. I, I don't know. I, I honestly don't understand it all. Uh, I'm trying to understand where this, where the problem is coming, but I'm like, we need to get this solved because it's actually holding us up at this point. I have to pay AWS because I can't, uh, uh, I can't build my own. That's an interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> the shortage is probably helping the big guys because they have more power, right. To, to push the, the, the limited supply towards them. Yeah, it's been definitely been covered. I mean, if it's driving a lot of things in the space, it's become political to with respect yes. to you know national security and where do you want to build a chip and where do you want to build a fab? So it's like it's added another layer to all the wild stuff that's been going on in the, in the space in general. But like yeah. I mean, for so like if you think about it from your current standpoint, is like is it is this like something where you view it as a three month delay? Is it, do you have, you have any insight on it? Uh, I okay so. I don't have enough insights to give you a, a really well-educated answer, but I'll, I'll give you this. So from what I understand in certain scenarios, it is a demand change that's caused the issue. So the, you know, the supply chain is very tuned to demand. When demand changes a couple percent, it actually wrecks everything, right? So if that's a scenario, building for that demand, or if that's an actual real demand change that's going to continue, building for that demand will make it a two to three year problem. Because just building the fab capacity takes that long, right? You got to acquire land, you got to, you got to get the equipment, you got to build it. Like it just takes a while. If it is a, you know, shipping and working worker problem, then it's, it'll be faster. And I don't, I don't know which one it is kind of overall, right? I think there are certain scenarios where demand has increased. Uh, I think there are some also problems on, on just uh, enough people working and, and getting getting stuff out the door. So I, 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 don't, I don't know enough about which one is the problem to actually give you a good guess. But if, if I knew which one it was, I, you can, I think you can put it into one of these buckets. So I, I hope it's the latter where it's something we can resolve in the next few months by you know, the world kind of coming out of COVID and, and getting back to normal. But if it's the former, yeah, we're in for a long, a long haul here, unfortunately. Well, let's hope it's not. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> All right, Daniel, any, anything else? No, I think that's great. I think a lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, Naveen, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing with us. And best of luck with the new venture. It sounds like a well-timed and Where can people learn about Mosaic? Opportunity for a... you. So follow us on Twitter at MosaicML, or uh, you can follow me at Naveen G. Rao or check out our website at mosaicml.com. Are you guys going to be at any events or anything in the near future, kind of, uh, you know, showcasing what you're up to? Yeah, we plan to, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of 
blogs and you know uh, other kind of uh, documentation. There's a lot on the website right now uh, to see about what we're doing. We're very transparent. We will be at some of the big conferences. We're we're planning that out right now. I think we're trying to understand what conferences are in person because we feel that's the really big bang for our buck. But yeah, we're here to enable the community and allow everyone to, to train more efficiently and effectively uh, using existing hardware. So you know, check it out. See see what what's there. Ask questions. We have a community Slack as well uh, that we try to stay on top of. I'm on there. Some of our experts are on there as well. So uh, yeah, we're trying to we're trying to make multiple ways to connect with the community, and you know, conferences will be uh, will be a big part of it going forward. All right, very cool. It's a good thing Slack was already bought out by Salesforce, or that would have opened up another line of questioning about your usage of Slack, which was a big topic last oh, year on this okay. podcast. Yeah, I, I love Slack. Uh, Nirvana was actually one of the very early customers of Slack, oddly enough. So we, uh, we, we were on Slack, I think, before they even were charging, or they were charging a very, very tiny amount to us when we were, we were a startup. All right. Great stuff, Naveen. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, good. best of luck going forward. Great. Great talking with you guys. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.